Well, welcome. We are on uh, lesson four of our quarter here. We're in the section on uh, Christology, what we teach about Jesus Christ. And last week we uh, introduced the fact that Jesus came. You know, in the Old Testament, there are three prominent positions in the nation of Israel, the prophets, priests, and kings, and they had different roles. And, um, but in some sense, they were um, uh, picturing the, the multifaceted role of Christ, who was to come uh, as prophet, as priest, and as king. Um, so today we're going to look at his role as the prophet. Not just a prophet, but the prophet. And so I'm on page 36. Uh, what is it that a prophet does? What's the role of a prophet? The prophet stands with um, his back to God, speaking to the people God's word. Okay, so he's... Um, you might say a mouthpiece for God, uh, revealing um, something that God has revealed to him to reveal to the people. Okay. Anything else? Someone that speaks truth. Speaks truth. Okay, because he's speaking God's word to people, right? Foretelling things that will happen in the future. Uh, includes sometimes foretelling. Not just forthtelling, but also foretelling. Um, and... Uh, you know, often Christians, um, when they hear Jesus referred to as a prophet, think, "Oh, that's that's a lower that's a lower uh, position for him. Why why are we thinking of him as a prophet? Because there are lots of prophets who are not God. Jesus is God. Um, but in fact, Jesus is the the." Um, chief example of what it means to be a prophet and of course he referred to himself as a prophet so let's start here with number one on page 36 Jesus as the word of God perfectly revealed God to man he is the exact representation of the invisible God so perfect was his revealing of God that the one who saw Jesus saw the Father. Um, so, Jesus was, in that sense, a prophet more than just conveying words, but being the word, the revelation, the complete revelation of God uh, in, in human form. Uh, of course, he had lots of words that were, were essential to his, his role as communicating God to men. Um, but, of course, he did that in a fashion that was far superior to what any other prophet could do. He actually was revealing God to men by his own uh, person. So, um, could someone read for me the third verse down there, John 1.18? No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained. So Jesus explained the Father. Uh, he um, provided people uh, clarity on the nature of God, uh, his will, and, and so on. And let's go down to the the memory verse, Colossians 1.15, in bold there. Could someone read that? Diane? And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The image of the invisible God. So we're created in God's image, but Scripture doesn't re refer to us as the image of God in quite the way it's referring to Christ here, right? Um... um Jesus himself said, he who has seen the Father has seen me. And uh, Jesus is therefore the, the uh, 
if, if you want an understanding of the Father, then look at the real example, the real human example that we have in Christ, who took on flesh and blood, but represented, was a perfect representation of the Father. Now, it uses that term, firstborn of all creation. What's that mean? He was the first one ever born? I'll give you a hint. We yeah, we, we covered that on page 19. Now, I don't know to what extent we actually covered it in the conversation, I forget, but uh, on page 19, there are a number of terms about Christ and his uniqueness that we went over. On page 19... Uh, has a section there on his being called in several places the firstborn. Uh, sometimes it's firstborn of the dead, from the dead, uh, firstborn of all creation. But uh, think of think of the um, you know the history, the culture in the Old Testament in the nation of Israel. Um, what was true about the firstborn, particularly the firstborn son? He got, he got the inheritance, a double portion of the uh, uh, the inheritance, the, the the father. Yeah. Is it um, also like the head of the family, even head over the brothers at that point, like taking a leadership role, not just inheritance as far as monetary or land and all the stuff, right. also a leadership? Yeah, so so it, it speaks to this, this um, I'm going back here to page 19, it speaks to this role of uh, position, preeminence. Um, the, the firstborn was recognized to uh, carry on the the um, you know the, the the family name and and whatever in, in a in a human context, uh, but the firstborn was had was sort of a tier above the others. He was held in higher honor, higher responsibility, preeminence is is the the term there. Yeah. I don't know if this is helpful, but John MacArthur has a note in here about the 15, and he finishes it up by saying, thus Jesus is the firstborn in the sense that he has the preeminence and possesses the right of inheritance over all creation. He existed before creation and exalted in rank above. Right. So it's, it's if you want a synonym, the synonym is preeminence. And you can picture in your mind the human corollary to that, you know, the the preeminence of the firstborn in, um, in Old Testament times, but uh, preeminence is the key, is higher place, right? Okay, and in this verse is saying firstborn of all creation, firstborn over all of creation because he is the creator, right? Let's go down to the next passage there, Hebrews 1, 3. Indeed, the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Yeah, so this one is a little bit unfair, looking only at verse 3, because, and there's a couple of he's and his's in here, referring to different people. So when it says, he is the radiance of his glory, whose glory are we talking about here? God the Father particularly. He is the radiance of his glory. Who's the he who's the radiance? Jesus. Right. You can see in the context, the first couple of verses there, that that's the case and the exact representation of his nature, of God the Father's nature, right? And upholds all things by the word of his power. So, as um, a prophet, Jesus has that role of representing 
God, not just by the words he says, but he himself is communicating the essence of God's character. Um, the, uh, yes, what he says is what God is saying, but uh, he himself is part of that revelation. The, and uh, so it is accurate to refer to him, as John 1 does, as the word of God. Yeah. Okay, let's go to number two. Jesus Christ is the prophet foretold by Moses who would be raised up among his brethren and to whom the Jews were to give heed. No greater prophet has arisen or will arise among men. So this takes us back to the end of the Pentateuch, the end of Deuteronomy, where in chapter 18, if you look at the first two uh, verses that are quoted here, the Lord your God will raise up for you, God is saying through Moses, will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. And then he says in verse 18, a little later, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. This is God speaking directly to Moses now. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I command him. So, uh, what are some attributes of this prophet that, is, that are outlined here? His humanity. How do you get that? Because it says raise up, um, it says like, like from your countrymen, among you. Okay. So he's going to be a Jew. Right? What else do you see? The obedience of Jesus. Where do you see that? He shall speak to them in all that I command him. Okay. Anything else? The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses. In what sense would this prophet be like Moses? Okay. Deliverance. Like Moses stood in place of the people. Like something I was reading the other day or yesterday in the Psalms about how he stood like in their place so that the wrath of God would not come. And so that represents how Christ stood in our place so we can so being something of an intermediary between God and man actually that gets us to this other role he has that of a priest <laughs> but um, that is true he's like Moses in some sense there right um, yeah Moses did miracles yeah yeah so um, the the authenticity of his ministry as being that of God, God working through him, was authenticated by miracles, just like Moses. Yeah. Um, along the same lines as what Heather said, interceding for us, like uh, I think you were referring to him maybe bearing the wrath for us, or you know that way, but also yeah. interceding for us. Interceding, and again that's. More the role of priest rather than prophet, but um, yeah. There's also an intimacy between God and Moses that hasn't really been seen since. Yeah, yeah. So that intimacy between Moses and God, what are some examples of that? Um, well, the, Moses got to be in the very presence of the Lord, whereas the Israelites couldn't even bear to be close to the mountain. Yeah, yeah. And Moses goes into the presence of the Lord in, in the tabernacle, and he comes out, and his face is glowing, right? I mean, he had a, a personal relationship with God that was unique. And um, that's also true of Christ. Of course, he's had that relationship from eternity past. <laughs> um, but when most people think of Moses, what do they think of? The law. Lawgiver. In what sense is this prophet a lawgiver? Okay, the culmination of the whole law? Yeah. Well, Jesus explained the law and, and actually expanded it somewhat. Where 
Moses basically gave it, there's, there's a fulfillment in Christ of what Moses began. Yeah, and we're going to touch on this here a little bit later today. Um, but he not only spoke the truth, he helped people to understand and apply it and point out counterfeits. Yeah. Good. Okay, so that second passage, verse 18, that I just read, um, is quoted in Acts 3, the last one we have on that page. Um, heaven and, uh, referring to Christ, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall utterly be utterly destroyed from among the people. So, um, you know, when um, during his resurrection appearances with his disciples, there's several references to Jesus um, opening the scriptures and uh, explaining to them all that had been written in them about him, himself, right? I'm pretty sure he took them to this passage. <laughs> um, wouldn't you, you have liked to have been there when he was describing how, how the Old Testament um, was fulfilled in him, that it was all speaking of him? And their mind was just, wow, I get it now, kind of a thing, right? I'm sure this is one of the passages. Okay, let's go back up to the third one in this section, Luke 13, 33. Can someone read that? Okay. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Who said that? Jesus. So, um, when we read that, mostly what we're, we're, we're seeing is that he knew he was going to die and it had to be in Jerusalem. But in the context of that, he's saying that's, that's sort of typical that the prophets uh, died in Jerusalem. Being kind of sarcastic. Um, no, I don't think it's sarcasm. I think it's um, maybe irony, but uh, the key for our context today is that he's, he's um, classifying himself as a prophet. Yeah. He's proclaiming prophecy that he will fulfill that. And he's actually, that's right, he's actually, in the sense of identifying himself as a prophet and talking about his coming death, He's behaving like a prophet, <laughs> and his prophecy, of course, came true. Right? Okay, let's go to number three on page 37. Jesus summed up the requirements of the law of God in the two greatest commands of loving God with one's whole being and loving, one man, loving man as oneself. Christ revealed the spirit of the law as coming from inner attitudes and rebuked hypocritical external conformity to the law. So uh, you've seen this before, but typically here in the Sermon on the Mount, these first three passages uh, where Jesus is saying, well, you, know, you have heard such and such, but I say to you, you have heard this, but I say to you, Sometimes when he was saying you have heard, it actually is from the law, from the Old Testament. Uh, other times it was from uh, just general, um, not strictly biblical, but uh, the teachings of the rabbis and this kind of thing. But in every case, he's saying, but I say to you. How is he speaking? With authority, right? I say to you, listen up. Here's what you need to know, right? So he's, he's, that's a traditional role of, of a prophet, but he's not saying, thus saith the Lord. In other words, I'm just the mouthpiece for the Lord. But he's saying, 
I say to you, he's claiming that authority himself, which a prophet wouldn't claim is inherent of himself, but rather he would be the mouthpiece of God. Jesus is different. He's speaking with authority himself. Yeah. It's important to understand Jesus is not contradicting the law. A lot of commentaries try to say that. There was a, the Jews had what's called the mitzvah, and they had their interpretations of the law, and Jesus is contradicting their interpretation of the law, not the actual law. Sometimes they're called the traditions of of the scribes and the Pharisees and so on, right? Um, And so, for example, uh, let's actually go to Matthew 5. It might be worth an example there. And let's take that third verse, verse 44. But to see the context there, let's look at 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. Now, I don't know if you have the NASB, but in the NASB, the direct quotes from the Old Testament are in all caps. That portion of what he's saying is in all caps. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The hate your enemy part is not in all caps. Why? Because it's not there. It's not there. Where is it? In the interpretation. In the traditions and so on. If we're supposed to to, um, love those who are neighborly to us, and that that may be one reason why the... um, uh, was it the rich young ruler? Whoever it was who, who Jesus challenged. It was, he was a lawyer. That's right, a, a, an expert in the Old Testament law. Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember who asked who. But anyway, the question was, um, how do you distill the law? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And then this guy asked Jesus, so who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells him what? The Samaritan. The the parable of the Good Samaritan showing, now who was the neighbor to this guy? The Samaritan was, you go and do likewise. So um, there's probably a very deep uh, tradition that yes we can love those who are lovable <laughs> but uh, it's okay to hate those who are not <laughs> and what what's Jesus saying here you have heard that it was said you should love your neighbor as yourself and hate your enemy but I say to you love your enemies yeah. and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous um, so he was helping people to see the not only the letter of the law, but the purpose, the application of the law. Um, and we're going to see that in spades here in a minute. But let's go to um, the next passage here, Matthew 6. Um, where he says, beware of practicing your righteousness. What is righteousness? Doing the right thing. Doing the right thing. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. When therefore you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, and so on. And then he said later, um, and when you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and so on. So, again, he's speaking with authority. 
Let's go down then to the last one, uh, which is continued over at uh, Matthew 23. And here Jesus is speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. And he didn't pull any punches, right? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Because you devour widows' houses, even while... For a pretense, you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, hypocrites was not a title of endearment. Right? <laughs> this, was, this was ruthless. I mean, um, uh, um, very sharp, accurate, convicting language. Uh, because you travel about on sea and on land to make one proselyte. What's a, what's a proselyte? Convert. A convert. In this case, right, the context would be a, a Gentile coming into Judaism. Um, you, you go to great lengths to make one pro, uh, proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Can you imagine the hair in the back of their neck kind of standing up at this point? Woe to you blind guides who say whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering upon it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering on the altar, or, or the altar that sacrifices the offering. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by both the altar and everything on it. And he who swears by the temple, and so on. But then in, uh, I don't have the verse numbers here, but then he's quoting them again. Um, no, down, down to where it says, uh, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill, and cumin, what are mint and dill and cumin? Spices. Spices. What would it mean to tithe mint and dill and cumin? Wealthy. Wealthy, maybe. But those are really small things, <laughs> right? So they're very particular to meet the letter of the law, even when it comes to um, a tenth of their spices. But you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat, the small things, and swallow a camel, the ridiculous things. The, the, the huge things that should be avoided, right? Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish. What's he referring to? External appearance, their own external appearance. But inside, they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup of the dish, and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. And here's my favorite one. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which appear on the outside beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and uncleanness. So Jesus has a, a, a number of examples here that he's driving home what? Principle. Right, so, so the, the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes and the uh, religious leaders, to them, righteousness was doing the right thing on the outside. 
What's Jesus saying? That's not a bad thing, but you're missing the, the big thing, which is your righteousness needs to be on the inside first. The heart. The heart. You need to be doing the right things for the right reason, with the right heart. He's taking the law and applying it in a very convicting way to those who had been misunderstanding and abusing that law. Right? So he was functioning as, as a prophet there. He was, he was explaining God's truth to people who were misunderstanding it. Uh, yeah. Didn't the prophets also like pronounce woes as well? Yes. There's certainly examples in the Old Testament where prophets were uh, directed by God to pronounce woes on particularly the... Um, uh, foreign nations around them, the, the ungodly type people. Yeah. And um, I guess there's some parallel here. Although in this case, um, the ones he's pronouncing these woes to um, ought to have understood and applied. Uh, they were Jews. They were upholding the law, or at least they thought they were. Yeah. Well, the, in the Old Testament, Israel was warned when they thought they were keeping the law that they were going to go into captivity. And, and there were several prophets that told them how what their sins were that they didn't listen. Right. And that that um, um, was really not much different from what Jesus was confronting in his day. Yeah. And it's not a whole lot different from a lot of people today who think that by you know, going to church and doing all these good things on the outside puts them in good standing with God when God may say, depart from me, I never knew you. Yeah. Okay, let's go to number four. As a master teacher, he spoke with unique authority and used a variety of methods of communication to impress the truth of God upon the hearts of the people. And so we've looked a lot here in these recent verses from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus was speaking with authority, but then at the very last verse of the, or the last two verses of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, the result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. Um, now, there wasn't a problem of the scribes teaching, uh, teaching what God had revealed. That's, that's fine. Um, but it must have been obvious that these guys were teaching things that weren't necessarily um, uh, true of them, personally. And it's also it's certainly the case, and I think that's the point of these verses, that um, they may have been passing along God's law, teaching them what God's law actually says, but not helping the people to understand it and apply it and make corrections when people were misunderstanding. Okay, so this section has, uh, following this, six verses, or passages anyway, that give examples of different kinds of teaching methods that Jesus employed. So what I'd like to do is have six different people, uh, read a passage, and then explain what teaching method Jesus is employing here. Let's see what we can observe. Okay? Who can take the first one? Matthew 22. Heather? Um, but Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? 
they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they marveled, and leaving him, they went away. So was there a particular um, teaching method he used here? An object lesson. An object lesson which uses an object, a prop, right? What was the prop in his case? A coin, right? And so he's using it as an object lesson. Uh, They thought they had him uh, trapped. Because if he says, yes, it's okay to pay taxes to Caesar, a lot of the people would say, though, that's, that's an evil regime and, and he's siding with them. That's, that's. Or if he says, no, it's not good to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, then um, the, the Romans would have cause to accuse him of insurrection and so on. But, and so they thought they had him either way. But he said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but to God the things that are God's. And I'm pretty sure when he said, but to God the things that are God's, he's looking right in the eyes of his accuser. Challenging him. Are you doing that, rendering to God the things that are God's? Okay, so he used a prop. Can you think of any other props Jesus used at different times for an object lesson? Yeah, he asked at one point for a little child to be brought to him, Mm -hmm. right? And he says, unless someone, what? Unless someone comes to me like this child, he's, yeah, he's not worthy of the kingdom of God. Good. Who wants to take the next one? Luke 4. Okay. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So, what kind of teaching methods do you think he's exhibiting here? I think he just flat out told them. (laughs) (laughs) Like there's no secret, there's no figure it out, it's just like boom. But, like, references? Oh, okay. Go ahead. Testament, um, like, literature that they already knew. So he was um, reading from the scriptures. Actually, he, it was apparently the, the, uh, the place where they had left off before, and this was the next passage <clears throat> to be reading from, like, like we uh, typically go through, in the worship service, go through a, a longer section over many weeks. Um, uh, but anyway, yeah, he's he's reading the scriptures and doesn't just sit down. He speaks, and what he speaks floored them. I'm sure. Right today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And you can read on, you can see the extent to which, yeah, that, that stirred up the crowd quite a lot. Um, so he was direct. But the main thing here is reading and explaining scripture. I mean, it's, it's, at its very basic level, that's his teaching. Right? How about uh, Luke 6, 7 to 10? Somebody want to take that? Okay. And the scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on a Sabbath, in order that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew that he knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the withered hand, "Rise and come forth." And he rose and came forth. And Jesus said to them, "I ask you, is it lawful uh, on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it?" 
And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. So was there a teaching method here? A live demonstration. Okay. So obviously there was a, a another object lesson in, in a sense with the healing. Um, but is it just the healing? What else is going on here? It's when it's done. When it's done? He kind of questioned their understanding of the law. For sure. Um, he's just written like they're saying he knows that they're not compassionate. He's going to bring right to the heart of the issue. That's what he's saying. Yeah. yeah, so he, what, just at the very basic level, what is he challenging here? His What was that? Their understanding of the Sabbath. The Sabbath. Is he going to be breaking the Sabbath to heal somebody? They knew this guy, Jesus, heals people. And on the Sabbath, um, he knew what they were thinking. They were trying to trap him. I imagine everybody in the room knew what they were thinking. Um, And he said to the man with the withered hand, rise and come forward. And they said, aha, now we're going to get him. He's going to heal on the Sabbath, and then we've got a, uh, a hard evidence of his breaking the law. And of course he had several interactions like this on various Sabbaths to try to uh, uh, make a, a deeper point. But in this case, uh, he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or destroy it? Now that wasn't the kind of question they would have asked. They would have said, it, they would have stopped the sentence, is it lawful on the Sabbath to work? And that would have been the extent of the question. And they would have said, no, that, that's not lawful. But he catches them off guard, I think. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good to do, or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And what was their response? They could have no response, right? And so part of his teaching is um, helping people to see the the logical implications of their misinformation. I think it's another, it's not this case, it's I think um, the case where, it was also on a Sabbath, where a group of people brought that uh, crippled man down through the roof. And the same question comes up about the Sabbath. And, but at that time, Jesus says um, something to the effect to the man who's um, being healed, you're forgiven. And what, what, that's what got their, the, the attention of his detractors at that point. Not so much the Sabbath issue, but the fact that he was claiming to be able to forgive sins. And what did he ask them at that point? Do you remember? Yeah, so which is easier to say, rise, get up, and walk, or your, your sins are forgiven? What's the answer to that question? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven. Anybody can say that. But he did the harder thing. Rise, take up your pallet, and walk. So that people would know if he could do the harder thing, he could also do the thing that you can't actually see with your eyes to forgive sins. Because only God could do that. Or at least, ultimately. So he's, his healing was, was out of, motivated certainly by compassion, um, but he also used it strategically in cases like this to make a point as part of his teaching. Yeah. Jesus was challenging their way of thinking, and he was trying to show them maybe consider something else. And their reaction is rage and basically how are we going to do him in? Because we don't want to change. Yes. 
Yeah, their, their, their hearts were hardened and it just became obvious. It was obvious to everybody that their hearts were hardened, uh, for the most part. Some were not, but um, yeah, that's a good way to put it. They didn't want to change. They're resistant to his teaching them the, the ultimate meaning of the law. Yeah. I think it also expounds upon how when Jesus talks about how he's Lord of the Sabbath, this is kind of more evidence of that too, that like he is over the Sabbath. Yeah, yeah. So there, he had a number of interactions like that. Um, yeah, for sure. Okay, let's go to the next one, Luke 24. Okay. Do you remember the context here? Yeah, so it's uh, one of his resurrection appearances. He's speaking to uh, Thomas, who wasn't present in his earlier, about a week earlier, his uh, prior appearance to the disciples. Um, and so what's his teaching method here for Thomas? physical evidence, even proof, right? Proof that what? He's alive. That he's alive. Still like Jesus. <laughs> like he didn't turn into a spirit, but he still is like have evidence. Yes, even in his resurrection, it was a bodily resurrection. He's not just a spirit, not just a ghost, mm-hmm. right? That he has flesh and blood and uh, invited him to to uh, not only look, but touch and have that proof that not only is him, but that he has defeated sin and death. He arose bodily. So he's using proof, but also, again, he's using logic. He's he's, um, showing that alternate explanations just don't make sense. Um, someone could say, oh, he's just a spirit or a hallucinations or whatever, but hallucinations don't have flesh and blood <laughs> or the scars, right? Okay. Next one, John 6. Okay. Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes, he seen that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, where are where are we to buy bread that these may eat? And these he was saying to test to test him, for he himself knew that he was intending what he was intending to do. Okay, so we don't have the entire um, episode here, right? Of the feeding of, I think this one is the five thousand. Um, but what is Jesus? Uh, what's his teaching method here? Questioning. It specifically says he's testing him, right? <laughs> yeah, he was saying this to test him. Um, have any teachers tested you? Yeah, we're used to testing as a part of seeing what we know and what we understand, right? Revealing what we understand, what we don't, and that's that's a part of of. Uh, a component, anyway, of, of good teaching. It's just so you know it's not just in one ear and out the other, right? Testing. And Jesus did that on, on a number of occasions. Can you think of others? How about Peter when he walked on the water? Walking on the water. Uh, and even earlier, <clears throat> again, in a boat when the storm came up and he's asleep. Right? Oh, ye of little faith. Right? He's often testing their faith. Let's go to the last one there, John 13. Who'd like that? And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, You know what I have done to you. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. For so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
where I give you an example that you also should do as I did to you. What's the teaching method here? Personal example. Example. And there's something else he used here. Not just here, but there's another. He seems to be questioning their understanding. Yes. Again, he's questioning, just checking to see what they understand. Right. But example, that's the huge part here, right? Uh, being an example uh, is a, really a, a critical part of teaching. You know, it's not very effective teaching to say, do as I say, not as I do. Right? But you can be teaching a lot by doing without even saying anything, and people catch on. But the saying is also, the, the word is also helpful. Okay, so you see some variety of teaching methods that Jesus had. Can you think of any others that weren't listed in these passages? Any methods that we didn't touch on? The parables? Yeah, parables, right? So what is a parable? Story. It's a story. That represents spiritual truth. Okay, a story that's trying to communicate a spiritual truth. Um, um, and he told lots of parables, and they're specifically identified as parables. Um, sometimes it was very clear to his listeners what the point of the parable was. Other times, we see evidence that his disciples were wondering, so what were you saying there? <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of woo um, over the head. Um, but um, something similar to a parable is a, um, a good example of it is Pilgrim's Progress. Allegory. Allegory, that's it. Thank you. I don't know why these words are in here. They don't come out here. Uh, what's the difference between a parable and an allegory? They're both stories. Or a sense of to make a point. To an allegory. A sense of mystery to an allegory? Maybe. Yeah. I think the allegory is a more one-for-one -one kind of representation versus maybe point behind a parable which it may not match up exactly point by point to what you're trying to say. Yeah, I think that's, that's the main difference. Uh, uh, a parable basically is usually about making a point. You get to the end of it, okay, I see the lesson here. Right? An allegory is similar, except that the, many of the details have corresponding elements in real life that is trying to illustrate. Um, and I guess the, the most um, well understood common uh, example of that is Pilgrim's Progress, where even the guy's name is Christian. I mean, how blunt can you be, right? Um, um, now, some of Christ's parables um, did have components that meant things, and he explained those things to his disciples, uh, particularly the parable of the four soils. Um, but there are other parables right in that same context that were making similar points about the kingdom of heaven that basically it was, it was one kernel there that he was trying to communicate that was very similar across those parables, but there were different stories to kind of look at it from different perspectives, I guess. Um, Okay, so that's that's parable. That and so that's a teaching method, a vehicle. Let's step back a little bit. Let's see an analogy or uh, um, and usually a story that would communicate a um, um, a message, a, a lesson, right? So you know the the parable of the. Uh, the ten virgins, five had their the oil for the lamps and five didn't. What was the lesson, the bottom line? Be prepared. Be prepared. Yeah, it was just one lesson. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I was curious. Uh, do you see that the parables basically are all true stories, whether they've happened now or going to happen, 
where the allegory is not supposed to be considered a true story, but just a spiritual truth? Um, I would agree, except I think I would characterize the parables as um, examples from everyday life situations. That would not be an example from everyday life, even though it's a parable. Um, Well, no, I think he was drawing on their understanding of the traditions of of the wedding feasts and so on, and and they, they could picture the, 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 right. the scene, right? It's not referring to a particular one, right. necessarily, but something just in everyday life that people can relate to, uh, which maybe has some advantages, disadvantages. Maybe they, they relate to it so much that they, they miss the point, <laughs> possibly, right? Um, so, whereas a... a um, uh, um, allegory. allegory. <laughs> I'll get it. An allegory almost always, I think, would be um, yeah. an imaginary story. Imaginary, yeah. It, it, it's um, yeah. As you read Pilgrim's Progress, yeah, it's it's talking about a person going to places, but some of these events, there's no way they're real. But the, it's a dream kind of a thing. Yeah, it's more like a dream. Um, and, but you can see the lesson that's 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 underlying it, even though it's it's not the kind of event that somebody would encounter. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's always the case or it's a necessity for an allegory, but it certainly is there. Yeah. The Encyclopedia Britannica defines an, a parable from the Greek parabole as setting beside suggests a juxtaposition that compares and contrasts the story with an idea. An allegory coming from the Greek allos and something I can't pronounce, I'm not going to butcher, uh, and other speaking suggests a more expanded use of deception in oblique language or just something being a novel versus a short story. Yeah, the para in parable is like parallel. It's it's a coming alongside as a. Um, Usually, an allegory is a novel, poem, or painting that can be perceived to show a secret message. Yeah, yeah. Okay, what are some other? We mentioned uh, parables. What are some other teaching methods that Jesus used that we haven't covered? Actually, somebody um, mentioned. Yeah. I was thinking of when he was talking to Nicodemus and there was this kind of questioning back and forth that led to a logical conclusion. I don't know. Yeah, I'm trying to give that a name. <laughs> I mean, Socratic questioning. Maybe. Maybe. That's not quite. Yes, no. I don't know. Um, stretching people's thinking, their understanding, for sure. Um, asking questions, probing questions, yeah. but with Nicodemus, it's not so much questions, but statements that were designed to challenge his thinking. Unless someone is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Can't and <laughs> I have a question there. And Nicodemus is saying. I don't understand what you're talking about. How can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter his mother's womb and be born again, can he? What do you mean, be born again? And Jesus said, no, he's talking about spiritual birth. Not something you see. You can't see the wind, but you see the effect of the wind. Right? Likewise with the spirit. So he, he says some provocative things to get them thinking, get those wheels turning, to kind of guide them through... Um, you know, I, I've often, uh, others have commented, and I've often seen in my, in my own just reading of scripture that if I had events like someone like Nicodemus coming to me, saying, Lord, um, um, we, we know you're of God because no one can do the things you have done except God is with him. And if I were Jesus, 
It's a good thing I'm not. But if I were Jesus, I would say, yeah, you got it. Trust in me as your Messiah. But he doesn't. He challenges his thinking. You've got to be born again. And he starts with language that isn't all that clear. The concept of being born again, that's, 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 where's that coming from? Doesn't make sense. So, he, so Nicodemus asks, has some conversation. But you read through that, and you don't see any, any effort necessarily on Jesus' part to, to recognize he's, Nicodemus is almost there. Let's usher him over the threshold into uh, belief in me as Messiah. Um, maybe it was his omniscience. He knew that Nicodemus needed more time to evaluate all this and that eventually he would. But um, he didn't bruise the fruit. He just challenged the thinking. Um, interesting. Some other examples I had were, and we sort of mentioned this before, the use in language of uh, similes and metaphors. Um, what's a metaphor? It's not where you put your cows. What's a metaphor? Yeah. It's a comparison statement, but it is um, actually stating that something is something else versus a simile where you're just saying it's like or as yes. something else. Right. So... Basically performing the same role, but in one case you use like and as, that's a simile. What are some examples of Jesus saying like or as in giving an illustration? The kingdom of God can be compared to yes. or is as or is like. Yeah, and they t- he talks about a, actually that's often a way to introduce a parable. Right, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, or is, is like. Um, what about metaphors? What metaphors did Jesus use? I am the door. I am the door. Meaning, he swings on hinges. Now, what's it mean? Way in. Yeah, no one comes to the Father but through me. Right. He is also what? He said, "I am." Good shepherd. Uh, actually, good shepherd. Maybe it's just that it's so widely used in Scripture as a as an analogy of care and oversight and so on that it, it's not. I don't know if it qualifies as a metaphor, but maybe it does. Bread. But bread. <laughs> I am the bread. Boy, that really got them in John six. Yeah. I am the bread that has come down from heaven. Yeah. Um. That's a teaching mechanism. Was he intending to be crystal clear to everybody? No. No way. What was he trying to do? Get people to think. To challenge their presuppositions. Um, But like parables, um, you know, the disciples asked him, so why are you always speaking in parables? Do you remember what he said? No. What did he say? Hearing they may hear, and those who don't want to hear, they will not understand. Yeah. So those, those whom God has prepared, those who have ears to hear, will hear and understand it. Uh, which must have been a little bit of a conviction to the disciples because um, they were supposed to be able to understand it and often didn't. But they had the, the, um, the good practice of asking when they didn't understand. And so the, those who needed to understand could understand it. <clears throat> but those who were completely clueless wouldn't get it and why is that? Why would God want the ones who are completely clueless not to get it? They have hardened hearts. They have hardened hearts. And it makes them more responsible 
to the extent that they, they, they keep hearing the truth and they know they understand it, that makes them even more responsible. And their judgment is just, their judgment is just already. And they didn't want yeah. to understand it. No, they were hardened, as you say. Yeah. Okay, just other examples there. Um, we don't have time to go over the uh, interpretation. We talked a little bit uh, about Jesus being the Word of God. It's interesting how Scripture uses that both in terms of Christ and as Scripture itself being the Word of God. And there are a lot of parallels we can see there. Um, and just real quick then, the application. How can you ensure that you're obeying what Jesus taught, not just enjoying what he did to pay for your sins. So what he taught, <clears throat> what is in all of scripture, is not just um, for our head knowledge, <clears throat> not just for ushering, in, ushering us into the kingdom. It's all valuable for that. But it's also there that we would... Um, Not just have it in our heads, but in our hearts and in our actions. Right? And Jesus, in his role as a prophet, tried to bring that out. Both to those who believed in him <clears throat> and those who were opposed to him. Anyway, let's close in prayer. <clears throat>